Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Insight. My name is Ali, and here with me, as always, is Charlie. What's new with you? Oh, not much. Everything. It's a long story. How are you? I am doing okay. Got a little bit of a cold, but I'm doing okay. So remember that mental health break we took, Charlie? Vaguely. (laughs) Well, it's all over now. Back in the deep end. So today's story is a tough one. If you are sensitive to certain brutal crimes, listener discretion is advised. This isn't the episode for younger or more sensitive people. It really has everything. It's an unresolved cold case, an unsolved murder. There are coerced confessions. It's a wrongful conviction. There are conspiracy theories. It has it all. Today, we are discussing the seemingly random mass murder from the early 1990s, the yogurt shop murders in Austin, Texas. So sometime between 11pm and before midnight on Friday, December 6, 1991, Jennifer Harbison and Eliza Thomas, both 17-year-old girls, were working the clothes shift at their part-time job at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, which is a small yogurt shop in a strip mall in Austin, Texas. After they finished cleaning, they were headed for a sleepover Jennifer's 15-year-old sister, Sarah, was waiting for the older girls with her friend, 13-year-old Amy Ayres. Just before midnight, the owner of a party supply shop next door to the yogurt shop, he was working late and he says he heard what seemed to be strange sounds coming from the roof, followed by popping sounds. When he goes outside to investigate, he sees smoke coming from the yogurt shop. He also sees the back door of the yogurt shop partially opened and flames inside. At the same time, a police officer is doing a routine check of the area and he sees the flames as well and he reports it. So the firefighters arrive and see the yogurt shop in darkness and full of smoke. They report that the front door is locked, however, they open it without much trouble. The firefighters, of course, get to work putting out the fire and so one of the firefighters spot what he thinks is a human foot. He goes for a closer look and finds the naked bodies of three young girls near the back door of the shop. Two of the bodies, that of Eliza and Sarah, are stacked on top of each other with Jennifer lying next to them. The police will later report that they believe that Jennifer was on top of the other two girls but had rolled off due to the fire. The girls had been bound with their own clothes. They are covered in styrofoam cups that the cups are tested and they have been drenched in lighter fluid before they are set alight. All three girls had died to a shot to the head execution style. So the firefighters look around some more and within a few minutes they find Amy, who is the youngest victim at 13 years old. She's near the yogurt shop bathrooms and she's barely alive. She too is naked and bound by her own clothing. Amy dies shortly after due to two gunshot wounds she has to her head. In a later autopsy it has been ruled that she has also been raped. 
Only $540 was taken from the shop, and police believe that there were two different guns used in the murders, a 380mm pistol and a 22mm pistol, four 22 calibre bullets and a 380mm slug and shell casing were all they were able to recover from the crime scene. However, due to the condition of the bullets due to the fire and the way the bullets react when shot from a 22mm, there's no way of knowing if these bullets all come from the same gun. So just one thing I wanted to add is that based on what the manager said about the lockup of the and the closing routine that the girls would have went through, he said that the back door of the shop had a deadbolt lock and a thumb latch on the inside, and he had the only key to the back door. And it was normally closed and locked. The girls would exit through the front door and then slide the front door key back under. Nobody, they wouldn't have opened that back door, but it was open. From the description, I assume that this is a service store and it's only used for deliveries or having something repaired. Sometimes there are certain things I'm like, let's highlight this. So let's highlight that, that the back door was open, but the girls, they would have had no reason to open it. So the firefighters arrived, but they only knew they were responding to a fire. That's all that had been reported. The front door to the shop, like Allie said, it was locked. They pried it open, but I mean, it's just a basic lock. It wasn't too hard. The worst of the fire was in the back, though the whole store was dark and full of smoke when they entered. So as they're making their way to the back of the shop, already putting out the fire, they discovered the four girls. There was... No indication before they got to that back room, which is about the last one third of this kind of narrow strip mall store, that this was a murder scene. So the front was completely undisturbed. So water's being doused all around, and the firefighters aren't particularly being careful of things like trace evidence as they're walking through the shop. And obviously this isn't their fault. A fire at a store at practically midnight their first thought isn't that there's going to be people there. So their focus was first in controlling the fire before more damage was done to the rest of the stores in that strip mall. And when they found the victims, now their priority is to check for signs of life and tend to the victims. So preserving the crime scene should never come at the cost of patient care. So it was pretty much third on their list of priorities at this point. So regardless of how it happened, a lot of evidence or potential evidence was lost. In one of those fortunate, unfortunate moments, unfortunately, some of the girls were sexually assaulted. However, this left DNA behind. The medical examiner was able to collect it, though this was 1991. DNA testing wasn't nearly as sophisticated as it would be later. It would be a while before the testing sensitivity caught up to the samples they had. So like any investigation, the police contacted anyone who was in the yogurt shop that day, customers, employees, as well as other friends of the four girls. Thousands of tips came in pretty early on before they started drying up. While the police did receive some promising leads, none were taken as serious persons of interest at this point. Part of this case that makes me scratch my head are the number of false confessions. Yes. Now, we'll get into the ones that count later, but I'm not talking about a couple of false confessions. There were something like 50 false confessions made, including six written false confessions. Now, how do we know these are false? 
Uh, they had significant key parts of the crime incorrect. The person possibly, like, could it not have done it? They actually are saying they did a crime that they have an alibi for. One of the original detectives on the case has said that they had two pretty promising confessions from Mexican prisoners. Like, as in prisoners in Mexico, not Mexicans in prison in the U.S. And they looked pretty good. But he couldn't find any evidence to back it up, and then he realized they didn't do it. And I really liked he emphasized that his approach with confessions was, all right, now I I have a confession, now where's the evidence? Not, oh, I have a confession, now I'm done. And I did read at one point they had 342 suspects. They had a large number of suspects and confessions. It's crazy. They had little evidence, but a whole lot of people. Yes, So that was all up until eight days after the crime. On December 14, police pick up 16-year-old Maurice Pierce at North Cross Mall, which is a few blocks from the yogurt shop, and he is carrying a 22 caliber gun, the same type of gun that police suspect was used in the crime. So obviously, the police take him in to question him, and Maurice says that he got the gun from his friend Forrest Wellborn, who was a 15-year-old teen at the time. And that Forrest told him that he used the gun to commit the murders. They check the gun with ballistics of what they found at the crime scene. However, they don't match up. So police wire up Maurice to see if they can get a confession out of Forrest. They listen in on the conversation between Maurice and Forrest. And it becomes evident real quick that Forrest has no idea what Maurice is talking about. So the police come pick up Forrest. And of course, he denies being involved in the crime. They give him a polygraph and he passes. However, he then tells the investigators that him and Maurice, plus two other friends, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen, who were both 17 at the time, the four of them stole a Nissan Pathfinder just days after the murder and went for a joyride. The police pick up Michael and Robert the following day and question them about the murders, but they deny all involvement as well. And nothing links any of these boys to the murders, so police can't lay any charges. And since they can't get the confession out of any of the other boys, they are all released without charge. And the case stalls. The confession, however, does put Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen on the police radar. So fast forward five years. In 1996, a new detective, Paul Johnson, is put on the case because fresh eyes and all. He goes through all the tips and one in particular stands out to him. Maurice Pierce. Police believe that Maurice was the mastermind behind the crime. So again, the four boys, well, they are men by this stage, they are all brought in for questioning. And again, they deny being involved in the murders. However, the interrogations continue. And eventually, Michael Scott breaks and admits he was involved in the murders. Now, before we get into what Michael said in his confession and the problems surrounding how the police got that confession... I think it's important to understand a bit of background of the process the girls would have went through to close the yogurt shop. So what would have happened is that one girl would lock the front door and they are told to leave the key in the deadlock so they don't lose the key. I would say that that has happened in the past and this is to stop the inconvenience of having to call a locksmith out the next day. The girls would then have to sweep and mop the floors, place the chairs on the table. You can see that they had gotten to this stage by the crime scene photos and eyewitness testimony but we'll go through that a bit later. The other girl would do the cash register, she would count the money and do all the daily admin type stuff. Then the food would be put in the refrigerator 
all the equipment would be washed and wiped down. Finally, the girls would leave through the front door, relock it and slide the key under the door in an envelope for the people who were opening the next day. After the fire, the police find the key in the front door lock. Okay, so back to Michael Scott. According to the eight-page signed confession from Michael, on the night of the murders, he was at the North Cross Mall with Maurice, Robert and Forrest. Michael claims the robbery was all Maurice's idea because he needed money. They agree on I can't believe it's yogurt as the target. They all get into Maurice's car and drive over there. Maurice goes in and places an order, while Michael and Robert go towards the back of the shop under the ruse of using the bathroom. But instead, they go out the back door and prop it open with a rock or cigarette packet. Then they wait for the shop to close. Both Maurice and Robert each bring a gun into the yogurt shop. Forrest was the lookout and he stayed in the car. Apparently, Robert removes the girls' clothes while Michael ties up and gags them with their own clothing. Around this time, Maurice is yelling at the girls for the money. Whether they refuse or tell them there isn't any money, Maurice shoots two of the girls. Then Robert hits the third girl and sexually assaults her. The fourth girl starts screaming and begging them not to kill her. Michael, who claims he is afraid of the other boys, pretends to sexually assault the other. At some point after this, Maurice hands Michael the gun. Maurice starts yelling to Michael to shoot her, shoot her, and he does. And that leaves Amy, the youngest. We know it's Amy because Michael picks her from the pictures of the girls. Maurice and Robert tease Michael and tell him to shoot Amy, which he complies. According to the confession, Michael's also responsible for moving the girls into the position that they are found in later, and he starts the fire. Michael says the next thing he remembers is running out of the door of the burning yogurt shop to the getaway car. Morris wasn't in the car when they returned. Apparently the whole crime takes 20 minutes from the moment the boys enter the yogurt shop to the time they leave. They drove around until they find Forrest in a parking lot. About 10 minutes after that, they stop at a bridge where Michael vomits. He also throws a knife he took from the yogurt shop, which I assume he used to help tie the girls up with, and he throws it over the bridge. Robert Springsteen also confesses to investigators his involvement, and his story matches closely to that of Michael Scott's. Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wellborn maintain their innocence. Another mess that is the trial could be a podcast of its own, but we'll keep it to the basics. Oh, and the basics are long. In 1999, all four men were charged with capital murder. Robert Springsteen had also admitted to the investigators they had raped and shot one of the girls as well. And so his confession, though he gave one, was less detailed than Michael Scott's. As far as Forrest goes, remember that he had passed a polygraph earlier on. A grand jury twice failed to indict Forrest, so the charges against him were dropped. Maurice, his charges, while he was indicted, they were dropped for lack of evidence. Yes. Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott eventually do go to trial separately. I drew up a timeline of this entire thing from start to finish so that I could keep it straight, and I will get that up on our website so you guys can keep it straight. But Springsteen and Scott do go to trial, and they had separate trials. Unlike the John Juca mass craziness. There were some problems with their trials, which we can talk about when we talk about their appeals. But the glaring problem, just from a layperson's perspective, is that there was no evidence. Aside from their confessions, of course. 
while the DNA was collected, it hadn't actually been tested yet. There was a test eventually developed that could test for only male DNA in a mixed sample, even if that male DNA was mixed with female DNA, which is what you would expect to find in a rape kit, and we will get to that later. The prosecution did win based on their confessions. And I have to say, a lot of times we look back at these and we're like, oh, if I was on the jury, I wouldn't have convicted. I have to say Michael Scott's confession was fairly detailed. I may yes. have, I, I may have, and I even, right now, his kind of sticks a little because of the detail. But we'll get to that later. Robert Springsteen was given the death penalty after he was convicted in 2001. However, the Supreme Court ruled that juvenile offenders could not be put to death. And because he was 17 at the time of the crime, his sentence was reduced to life without parole. Michael Scott was given life in prison without parole to start with after his 2002 conviction. They were convicted about 18 months apart. So fast forward a couple years later, several appeals later, their convictions were overturned. And they were overturned for the same reason. It's their Sixth Amendment right. In the United States Constitution... We have a right to confront our accusers in a court. So what happened is that in Michael Scott's trial, Robert's confession in part was read into the record. Except Robert didn't testify, so Michael's attorneys could not cross-examine him. Yes. And Robert's was the same, only opposite. Michael's confession was used against him, even though he didn't testify and couldn't be confronted in court. Because of this impropriety... The convictions were overturned in 2005 and 2006, though they both stayed in prison pending the retrial. In 2008, they were successful in getting the DNA tested. The initial testing was from the vaginal swabs taken from the youngest victim. So let's just take a minute to think about the gamble asking for DNA testing is for either side. If the DNA matched Springsteen and or Scott and or the other two suspects and or anyone they knew, mm-hmm. they're sunk. Game over. Yeah. I mean, good luck trying to get out of a confession and a DNA match. However, if it doesn't match, how are the prosecutors going to begin to build a case against them when that's literally the only evidence? So the initial DNA test was not a match, not a match to any of the four men. And to rule out the possibility of cross-contamination of the sample, the test was run against other men who responded to the crime scene and there were no matches. And the prosecution does try to keep the four boys involved in the crime, even though the DNA doesn't match. But we'll get to that theory a bit later. In late 2008, the Austin Chronicle, which is a fantastic publication that I hadn't heard of before, but if you want to read even more about this case, the Austin Chronicle for sure, they reported an announcement made by Springsteen's attorney that two partial male DNA profiles taken from swabs from the other victims were not a match to any of the four men either. So I went and I read several articles about partial DNA and making matches, but Without the lawyer giving more information than saying it wasn't a match, we can't really evaluate it. But regardless, the complete sample from one victim wasn't a match, and that's the one that's really at the center of this. They were set for retrial for the summer of 2009, and in June, what, maybe a week or two before the trial was supposed to start, the DA requested more time. 
And the judge ordered both men released pending trial because at this point, they had been in jail for three or four years after their convictions were overturned, waiting for this trial. And I'm assuming this DNA had come from Amy, yes? And that's the girl that allegedly Robert had sexually assaulted. You would you would assume then the DNA, according to both confessions, the DNA should have matched Robert. Or a second sample in that. It could have been a mixed sample. And it, yeah. Yes. But no, there was nothing that it wasn't Robert. Because she's 13 years old for crying out loud. Like there wouldn't be any... And there was no indications that there would have been a consensual relationship with anybody either. Correct. So in late June, the judge ordered both men released. And in October of that same year, the DA emotionally announced that the charges were being dropped due to lack of evidence. It's very clear in everything you will watch, read, hear, that the DA, the Austin Police Department, and the families who have spoken about this do believe they got it right. But the hurdle of not knowing who's the DNA belongs to and being unable to tie that person to the accused, there really wasn't any choice here. The DA, she could always bring up charges later, but if she went to trial and lost, double jeopardy would apply. Exactly. And you read the word tunnel vision being thrown about in a few articles, and I think that hits the nail on the head. And even though Michael and Robert have both been cleared, I guess, the Austin Police Department to this day still believe that these guys did it. And even though they say that they're investigating all angles, if you're focusing on one theory, if you truly think that's what happened, it's a concern of mine that any other theory will not be thoroughly investigated, which is the problem right at the start of this investigation. You'll hear it kind of bandied about that they got out on a technicality, and that's not entirely true. They got new trials based on, we can call it a technicality, their rights weren't preserved, which is a pretty big technicality to me, a believer in the Bill of Rights. However, they're not being retried and they're out of jail because of this DNA sample. That's really what it is. So let's go ahead and talk about these confessions since they were apparently such a big deal. Roberts was fairly brief, so we can kind of talk about that one first. The biggest strength of Roberts' confession was that it was very similar to Michael's, and they had been separated, so it's not like they decided to confess at the same time. At At the time of giving the confession, they lived in totally different cities. Also, Robert knew that one of the guns was a 380, which was considered a closely guarded fact that only the police knew and the perpetrators would know. Except, I can't figure out how that can possibly be true. When they brought Maurice in for questioning eight days after the murders because he had a 22, are you telling me the police didn't then ask him if he had a 380 or if he knew somebody who had a 380? They never mentioned a 380 to Maurice that he then went and told Robert and Michael, hey, they were asking about a 380. And the kids, they talk. He would have told his friends. Right. So if the police pulled him in because he had a 22 and didn't ask him about a 380, they're terrible police officers because that would have been exactly what you would want to know. Did he have access to the other type of gun used in this case? Yes. And if they tried to be vague about it, the second they say a 380, he could extrapolate that that meant it was used in the crime. So I don't understand this as closely guarded secret. And 
I mean, the weaknesses are pretty simple in this one. He didn't know several details. He had to be asked multiple times before giving an answer consistent with what Michael Scott had said. I read that his confession had, like, contradicted itself, but I couldn't find specific examples of where he contradicted himself. I guess another strength in Robert's confession is he knew that the the gunman went through the back door and he knew the back door was propped open with a rock or a cigarette packet. And that wasn't public knowledge at the time. Right. And that's, that's assuming it wasn't public knowledge because assuming. the... The guy in the store next to them knew that the back door was open. And he's a small shop owner. Next day, customers come in. Oh, what happened next door? And he's like, this is my 15 minutes of fame. And he starts rattling off what he saw. And then they tell people and they tell people. Right. And I'm a talk it thrower. I, I think out loud. I process out loud. So if I was that shop owner, I would be telling everybody. I mean, anybody who asked, I'd be, that's how I would process what happened. Well, it's pretty traumatic as well. Of course, you want to sort of talk it through. Yeah. And so I don't know how something that the next door shop owner knew could possibly be considered, you know, a state secret. But, you know, that's, (laughs) that is how it's being portrayed. And we do have to remember, this is like, I mean, it was years in between, so who knows how much they heard that was or was not accurate. So Michael Scott's confession was quite a bit more detailed, so we have a little bit more to work with. He had some details very right. Things like the key being on the inside lock. Yes. That was accurate. And also, Amy was slapped, and... It's not believed that was that was a widely known thing. It was in the autopsy. She had a cut on her lip. Right. But nobody else. That's one of those things. Not like the back door open. Nobody else would have seen that except, you know, hospital workers who transported her and the medical examiner. So that one I do feel is a that that's a pretty strong detail to have in there. I guess one of the strong strengths for me is that he knew that Amy was still alive after she was shot And he knew that the other three girls, and not Amy, were the ones that were piled on top of one another and set on fire. And that is significant to me as well. If he had heard the girls were stacked, you know, through, you know, rumor and gossip, he probably would have assumed it was all of them. But that he had that specific thing that Amy was separate from them. Yes. And she was still alive. See, like I said before, I get kind of tripped up on this confession, even with the DNA results, because... He did say some things that were very convincing. Yes. Ready for the weaknesses now? Ready for the weaknesses. There's plenty. There there are plenty. So you would think that this list being longer would convince me. Okay, so he had the color of Pierce's car wrong. The car that they were supposedly in and the getaway car. Uh, another thing, he stated that one girl was killed in the office, which is not what happened. Not consistent with the evidence the office was locked. All blood evidence showed that they were killed in that main back prep area. And following on from that, he actually never describes the layout of the yogurt shop correctly, which plays a big role in the crime scene. He had some internally inconsistent statements within his confession. Things like, you know, the movements of the other people. He had two different, like, he'd tell the story again and Pierce gave him the gun. Well, then he tells it again and Springsteen handed him the gun. 
Also, this was a lot of questioning. He did have a lot of breaks. I mean, it was 20 hours, but not all at once. It was over a five-day period. That's exhausting day after day. Another weakness, we're going to call it the gun to the head incident. And you can watch this video online. During the questioning, one of the police officers stands up and he has the gun in his hand. Uh, a gun that, a uh, twenty-two. Yes. And he, so he has it in his hand and he goes around the side, almost to the back of Michael Scott. And he's describing the murder and he's saying, you did it, didn't you? And that kind of thing. He goes, you put your gun and he touches him on the back of his neck and says, didn't you do this? Now, this was actually in Michael Scott's appeal because he said he literally took a gun and put it to my head. And the police said, no, I didn't touch him with the gun. I touched him with my hand. It doesn't matter to me, though, because Michael would have seen him walk around behind him with the gun in his hand. And then he felt something, a solid object to the back of his neck. So to me, that's that's enough of having a gun to your head. You could hold somebody up with a little piece of wood if you pushed it into their back enough. Exactly. I watched the video multiple times. It's not a high quality video, but it is pretty obvious that he had the gun in his hand and he extended a finger and touched him in the back of the head with his finger. Technically, he didn't touch him with the gun, but he touched him with a finger with the gun in his hand at an angle that Michael couldn't see that it was his finger or a gun. Like, so this whole idea that, oh, well, it wasn't technically a gun to his head. It was to Michael, and his perception is what should matter. To me, it's intimidation at its best. Absolutely. I. Why would you hold a gun in your hand and go behind somebody if you weren't going to intimidate them? If I took a gun in my hand and I walked to the back of you, you would feel nervous. Exactly. So... Michael originally says the girls were dressed and then he says that they were partially dressed until he settles on that they were naked and same with how they were tied up. First he says that they were tied up with an extension cord and then with napkins which I'm not sure how that would work because I'm considering a place like this would just have disposable paper napkins. Oh yeah. And then he says the girls were tied up with their jeans and then he finally says they were tied up with their underwear. And at different points in the interrogation, Michael says the girls were strangled, and then he says they're bludgeoned or kicked or knifed or shot. He just keeps changing his story. And in a moment that is reminiscent of a certain um, true crime documentary, they keep asking him questions, and when he doesn't get the right answer, they ask it again. And then he literally says, so they're trying to get him to say who was there. And he's saying, me, Robert, Maurice. Me, Robert, Maurice. And they're like, who else? Who else was there? And he says, me, Robert, Maurice, and Forrest? And he literally asks. And they're like, oh, Forrest. And then he realized he hit on what they were looking for. Yeah. Like, there's so many moments in there where he says something and they're like, good, you're starting to tell us the truth and prodding him more where he knows he's not telling them exactly what they want to hear. And so he just keeps changing it until he hits on it and then they stop asking him about it. So his final confession has a lot of these details, yeah. but it took him a long time to get there. It just reminds me a lot of the Brendan Dassey interrogation and it shows that investigators can lead suspects and get whatever answer thereafter with a little coercion. And this is a weakness in both these confessions is the investigators very clearly used what is considered more and more a controversial technique called the Reed technique to elicit these confessions. 
included in the read technique, and this is what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to lie. They're supposed to make them uncomfortable. They're supposed to present the suspects with limited options. Like, either this happened or this happened. And it doesn't give them that third option of, I didn't do it. They start giving small bits of police knowledge that then, surprisingly to no one, find their way into the confession, making the confession look stronger. Now, the police don't mean to do this, but it's just naturally what comes from this. I mean, obviously, they mean to lie and present limited options, but it's that giving little bits of knowledge they're not supposed to give, they don't always realize they're doing it. They also give encouragers like, it's okay to tell us when it's clearly not going to be okay if they confess. So saying it's okay when it's not okay is part of this technique. But that's one thing to say, you know, it'll be okay if you tell us. That's one thing. But to go around and pretend or don't pretend to hold a gun to someone's head, that's totally something else. Yeah, that is off the charts, not even read technique. <laughs> That's like read technique bastardized to something <laughs> even worse. And then and then the fire, the original fire investigator on the scene that night said the fire started in the back where the office supplies were. However, after Robert and Michael confessed that Michael poured the lighter fluid on the girls and lit their body and lit their bodies on fire, the investigators went out and got a second opinion that matched Michael's confession. I find that curious that the initial ruling doesn't match the confession, so they go out and find one that does. Now, arson science is hotly disputed, and a lot of wrongful convictions in arson cases, I mean, it's a problem. So it's not surprising that you'll find two experts who disagree anyway, but then when they find one that matches the confession... When they had nothing else that matched the confession that, I don't know, that that makes me uneasy. Another thing that happened in their confessions is they were told that the others implicated them. Yes. So that limits your options. You're like, oh, crap, three people said I did it. I might as well start hedging my bets and maybe I can make a deal because I'm going down for this. It gives people the idea that they're stuck and their only way out is to confess. And that's why I have a problem with the fifth person, which we'll get to later, that if there was someone else involved, I think they would have happily given that person up, especially when they knew there was a chance they could get the death penalty. Exactly. And the biggest weakness to these confessions is the DNA evidence contradicts what they said. Yes. So those are the confessions in a nutshell. But even after all that, there is a grain of doubt in my mind because they did know some things that the general public wouldn't have known. Same here. I'm pretty convinced Robert Springsteen was not involved. Michael Scott, I'm on the fence. But sadly, it doesn't end there. Maurice Pierce reportedly suffered from anxiety attacks after being a suspect for the yogurt shop murders. He believed the police were out to get him. In 2001, he was stopped for running a stop sign. He allegedly panics and after a brief altercation, Maurice pulls a knife from the police officer's belt and stabs the officer in the neck. He's then shot and dies. And for the record, the police officer does survive. And it it was a pretty serious cut too. And the police officer didn't do anything. He just pulled him over and questioned, you know, what are you doing? And Maurice just had a panic attack or whatever and stabbed the officer. Yeah, and I don't know, did we mention now that I'm looking back on my notes that in these confessions, it also involved that they had been using LSD that night? 
I think I might have mentioned that a bit earlier. Yeah, they were okay. using yeah or yeah they were under the influence of alcohol and they possibly were using LSD. Yes, and so that is often used to kind of write off a lot of their inconsistencies. Well, of course they don't remember it clearly because they were under the influence. Yet they remembered a key in the front door and they remembered, you know, some little details, but not all of them. But you know what? The fact that they were drinking and taking drugs that night it makes me think even less that they were involved. It was a highly organised crime. Some teenage boys drinking, taking drugs, they're not going to think it through as much as the crime itself was committed. This doesn't really seem like a sporadic killing to me. No. It seems organised for sure. But since we're talking about that, we'll go to the theories now. So the prosecution later explained away the DNA not matching the four boys because there was another person with them that night and took part in the murders, the unknown fifth person. The families of the murdered girls, as you said earlier, Charlie, they were convinced the four boys were guilty. And I do know that they closely fit the FBI profile of probable gunmen. And as we said, they were possibly under the influence of alcohol and LSD of the night of the murders. So I, look, I don't think they're involved. Lack of physical evidence and the fact that they didn't commit any other crimes at any time in their lives, these are the reasons why I doubt their guilt. As Michael was being prodded, who else was there? Why didn't he name this mysterious fifth person? He he named Forrest. You know, he just picked a name. And if there was a fifth person there, there's absolutely no... They got four of them, but not the fifth. I, The fifth person theory does not make any sense to me at all. And something else that confuses me with the crimes being carried out by four or five people, if there are indeed that many people involved, with at least two of them being armed, then why tie the girls up? There's really no need. I mean, you basically have one attacker for every teenage girl. Now, I'll be the first to say it. Kids do some crazy stuff. But I can't see these girls offering too much resistance to four, possibly five guys with at least two guns. So what I'm trying to say is there is no need to tie these girls up. There wasn't a threat of being overpowered. Exactly. So because of all that, I don't believe that it's a robbery gone wrong or something carried out by a bunch of teenage boys. It's way too methodical and organized for me for that to be what went down that night. Right. I definitely feel that it was targeted, though the why is still a big question mark. And I can talk about one of the whys that often comes up when you have something big like this or a fire out of business is that there was some type of insurance scam. Now, I'm going to have to warn you that this is pretty solidly on the conspiracy side of things. There is a attorney in Texas. Well, I guess he's disbarred, so some, he's a far, former licensed attorney in Texas named Eric Mobius. And he claims his disbarment was actually part of an ongoing persecution against him for essentially being a whistleblower of judicial corruption. He's viewed in various lights. Sometimes he's kind of viewed as a bit of a crazy person, uh, Don Quixote fighting windmills that are really no threat. But others think he's paying the price of fighting a corrupt system. So according to Mobius, the Austin Yogurt Shop murders may have been a pre-planned insurance scheme. He believes this is connected in some way to another case he was working on, so it was kind of hard to separate them out because he, in his writings, he kind of flips back and forth between them. So from the best I can tell, his theory is that there was a plan in place to create a wrongful death scenario. 
So stay with me a second here. Insurance companies put money in reserve when they they identify a potential claim so that the claim can be paid out if necessary. If the money is paid out, then it leaves this reserve and the insurance company does not pay taxes on this money. If the money is not paid out, the reserve money gets put back into the profit category and the company does have to pay taxes on this money. In an attempt to avoid these taxes, along with extorting and or laundering some of this money along the way, Mr. Mobius asserts that insurance companies find or possibly even cause catastrophic events where there would be an insurance payout. Then they legally separate the families from their legal claims, which I'm not entirely sure how, but then they process the claims as though it was paid out to the families. So in a case like the yogurt shop wrongful death suit, where the settlement was for more than $12 million, that's a lot of money that the judges, lawyers, and executives then get to split tax-free. So the evidence for this. Okay, I'm saying evidence. Uh, Let's go with circumstantial evidence here. The attorneys that were involved in the yogurt shop case, in Mobius's view, were also the ones who were behind his disbarment and his bar complaints that led to his disbarment. They were also connected to this other case he was working on. So he sees these same lawyers involved in these two cases where he feels insurance fraud is happening. Mobius questions first why the yogurt shop's insurance company would settle a wrongful death case where they probably didn't actually have liability. Essentially, if they weren't at fault for the deaths, they wouldn't have lost their court case. So why would they settle when they could have won in court and not had to pay out? Second, why would a yogurt shop in a strip mall carry an insurance policy that would cover an over $12 million payout? I I don't have answers to his questions because maybe yogurt shops do carry that much insurance. I don't know. And I actually tried to look it up and I just got ads for insurance quotes, so I couldn't find it. And companies settle even if they think they could win in court just to not have to go to court. The obvious way to check this would just be to see if the families receive their settlements. And with a highly publicized case where the ballpark settlement amount was announced, I would think they would have said something if they didn't get the money. So I'm unsure how this scheme worked when it was such a well-publicized case. There's another insurance scheme rumor out there, and it involves the family of of a victim. So we hesitate to bring it up, and we kind of talked about this a little bit beforehand. But if you guys go out and look up this case, you may come across this information. And we just kind of want to have a say on it (laughs) before you come across it without context. So this theory is basically that the stepfather of a victim orchestrated the whole thing for the insurance money. Now, this theory is supported, and I'm using air quotes here, by the fact that the stepfather's brother and sister-in-law were later murdered in their home in 2007. And that house was also set on fire. There are newspaper reports saying that the police believe the couple was specifically targeted. So then that leads some people down the path of were they targeted because they knew too much about the crime at the yogurt shop and they had to be silenced. Now this is 16 years later and they were living in a different state so I don't understand exactly how they suddenly became a threat. And that's how I feel about it too. I mean, there's no evidence that these two crimes were connected. And considering the length of time between the settlement and the deaths of this couple, I'm not sold that there is anything at all. 
And the articles from that area at that time show that crime, particularly theft, was a huge problem. It was blamed largely on the rise of meth use in the area, but also it was known that the police response was extremely low to the area and the sheriff's substation had been closed out there. So it would take a while for the police to get out there. I think even in this case, it took four 911 calls before they the police showed up. So I will say that these were n- other crimes were not violent home invasions before this one, but that doesn't mean this wasn't a home invasion gone wrong. I got the impression from reading online forums that is that it is widely believed by locals that this couple's murder was just a robbery murder situation. It almost seemed like the way the crime was building in the area, this was just one of those things that it was eventually going to happen. Exactly. All the evidence is that this family had two horrible tragedies 16 years apart, and that makes me feel more sympathy than suspicion. So going on further from that and taking the robbery gone bad angle... This is not your ordinary robbery situation. The gunmen brought with them the lighter fluid, so it seems to me that they always had a plan in place. It seems to me that it was always their plan to rob, rape, kill, and then set the place on fire. As far as I'm concerned, this isn't a robbery gone wrong situation because, I mean, who robs a yogurt shop, seriously? It would be obvious to any experienced robber that a yogurt shop wouldn't carry all that much cash. However, the fact that they possibly knew that it would only be the two young girls manning the shop, it would have made it an easy target. And I think anyone who cased the area would know the closing routine and would know that two teenage girls are usually there. But seriously, if we're talking two people here splitting $540, that's what, $270 each... That's hardly worth murdering four teenage girls for. Why not just take the money and run? And why? I don't remember seeing that there was any indication that they even tried to get into the office where you would think maybe there was more money. Yes. They essentially just took what was in the till on a generic Friday night. And mind you, we're, I mean, this is in Texas where it's a little warmer, but we're still talking December. How many people are out for yogurt in December? You know, exactly. frozen yogurt in December. I really think the robbery was just quick grab the money so it looks like a robbery. Exactly. So I didn't mention it earlier, but there were some reports of other suspicious people at the yogurt shop before it closed. A former police officer, Darrell Croft, went into the yogurt shop around 10 o'clock to buy a yogurt, of course. He was standing in line when he noticed that there was a guy at the front of the line in a military fatigue style jacket, and he was ushering people to go in front of him. When Croft got to the front of the line, he refused to go in front of the strange man. So this guy goes to the counter and just orders a soft drink. He he pays and goes to the back of the shop. So then Croft goes to the counter. Eliza Thomas, one of the victims, was serving, and he asked where the strange man went, and she said that she had allowed him to use the bathroom. This made Croft feel uneasy, of course, so he hangs around waiting for the strange guy. He doesn't return after a few minutes, so Croft leaves. And then in 2002, the police tried to get Croft to pick the guy from a lineup that I would assume included our four teenage boys, but he couldn't pick him. But I mean, it's what, 12 years later, so obviously his memory would have faded somewhat. 
I'm a bit unsure why it was left that long. Croft, being a former police officer, would have known how important reporting this sort of thing soon after the crime was. So I doubt he would have left it that long before he reported it to the police. No. So I doubt he would have left it that long before he reported it to police. I don't know. In the initial investigation, they talked to pretty much anyone who was a customer leading up to closing. So I guarantee they talked to him. Exactly. As I Croft would have, they wouldn't have had to seek him out. I think Croft would have come forward by himself. Oh, I agree. Especially if he saw someone that gave him pause that evening. It's not even thinking back. He goes, oh, that guy did seem odd. He seemed odd in the moment. And the strange man, he asked Croft if he was a police officer. I don't know if he knew him from an earlier interaction or not, but for him to ask that question seems a bit strange to me. He may have just had that very generic uh, US police officer haircut. Maybe. So, and then there and then there was a married couple who saw the girls just before 11 o'clock when they stopped for, again, some yogurt. This was right before closing, so the girls would have been cleaning up the shop, stocking the napkin dispensers and turning the chairs upside down, that sort of thing. The couple say that they saw two men sitting in a booth, again drinking a soft drink, like the strange man that Croft saw, which they thought was a bit odd considering it is a yogurt shop. The wife said that the men made her feel uneasy, so the couple left. Did you see that picture of this, the front of the yogurt shop? It's a picture of all the tables and all the chairs are turned up except, except in one. that one booth. Yes. I'm one of those people, the last one to leave a party. So I'm very much sitting there while the people around me are like vacuuming the floor at <laughs> restaurants. I'm that person. So I'm sorry, everyone who's tried to close a restaurant early. I, I make you tell me to leave. So it looks like they did that. They cleaned up around this one table because somebody was still there. Yeah, seeing that photo was a bit unsettling for me because you, these two men, I'm assuming it was those two men sitting there and were they responsible it just gave me shivers. And I personally think that the man that Croft saw could have possibly maybe been scoping out the place, seeing who was working. The fact that he went out the back when he thought that someone was onto him seems a bit suspicious to me. I also cannot help but wonder if this man was one of the two men the couple saw drinking soft drink later on. I think it would be more likely that these men were involved in the murders than four teenage boys who were possibly under the influence of drugs and alcohol. I did read that Jennifer Harbison had been receiving death threats and that her parents were so worried that they placed a report with the police department. The police had also placed a trace on the family phone at some stage. So if this was a case where the shop was being watched, I don't think Amy or Sarah, the younger girls, were the planned target. I think it was pure unlucky chance that they were both there that night. If this is a if this is the scenario we are going with, in my opinion, it was more likely that Jennifer was the intended target. It definitely, we can't rule out that one of the girls, especially one who has reported that she was having issues with a stalker, was being stalked. So there were also some active serial killers around the area at the time of the murders, Kenneth McDuff is a convicted serial murderer and rapist and allegedly confessed to the yogurt shop murders of, on the day of his execution. A spokesperson for the Texas Department of Corrections denied that McDuff did make the confession, but several media outlets have reported that he did. 
An anonymous law official did say that in his confession, Macduff got some key details of the crime wrong, which is why they didn't believe him and possibly why they didn't make the confession public knowledge. One thing, Kenneth Macduff was known to occasionally work with a partner in his crimes, and that fits that the two men theory. And actually, Robert Springsteen's initial trial lawyers wanted to bring him up as an alternative suspect because a woman had reported seeing him in the area and he was found with a map in his car showing directions that kind of led him to within three blocks of the yogurt shop. I mean, it's a long shot that even if it got before the jury, it would have been very convincing, but the judge ruled it hearsay and it was not admitted. He also liked to tie his victims up with their stockings, which is again something similar to what happened with the yogurt shop murders. I do hope that the police did compare Macduff's DNA to the DNA they found on one of the girls. I mean, if he is known to have committed an abduction, rape and murder of a young female in the same area and and within days of the yogurt shop murders, I mean, there, there is a chance, even if it's a slim chance, he might have been involved. I would like to believe that the number of people capable of such brutal crimes are quite small. Yeah, it would be almost a relief if it was him, because then that means there's only one person out there doing this. I don't think it's him, but because there is a complete male DNA profile that they can compare, this is solvable. And I guess a tick in the it's not Macduff column would be that the girls' case really don't fit his victimology. Macduff's victims tended to be females he picked up in his car and they were all alone. When someone, a perpetrator, picks up people and get them in his car, there's a certain amount of control that's just there. Yes. And going into a yogurt shop where there's multiple entrances and exits with multiple girls is completely different than picking them up in the car as far as a control factor. And then we have Paul Dennis Reed, who was also known as the fast food killer. Some armchair sleuths seem to think that he could possibly have carried out the yogurt shop murders due to his criminal history. He was on parole from an aggravated arm robbery of a steakhouse at the time of the murders. He was later convicted and sentenced to death for murdering seven people during three fast food robberies in Nashville and Clarksville, Tennessee in early 1997. And he died of natural causes on November 1st, 2013. It seems possible that he could be involved. His MO was to attack fast food places, tie up the victims and then shoot them. However, I personally don't believe it was Reed. He carried out his crimes in Tennessee and it was a result of him breaking into a shop after being fired from a job. He had a very low or borderline IQ. So how he pulled off all the murders he did do and not get caught for as long as he did was a miracle for him. And I looked and I didn't see any allegation that he had raped any of the victims. No. He was from the Dallas-Fort Worth area and he committed the crime in Houston, which is about two and a half hours from Austin. And so what I don't really understand is he was paroled in Texas in 1990. Yes. And then he went to Nashville to become a Nashville star. Yes. At some point. And this crime was in 1991. I just wish I could have figured out when he went to Nashville, like where is there, I'm sure there's got to be some kind of evidence of when he got to Nashville, but the Nashville crimes didn't start for a couple more years. Yep, 97, yep. Right, so he could have been in Texas, but he could have already been in Tennessee. But as I said, he tended to do his crimes in a former pa- 
in a former place of employment. He was never employed by, that I could find, that he was never employed at the yogurt shop. So it doesn't seem to fit what he does. No, I, I don't think he fits very well either. And look, to me, this was just a well thought out crime. Someone who was experienced and was efficient in what they did. Also doubt that this was one person, even with a gun and then tying up the girls, there would need to be another person to carry this out. And besides, the evidence straight out says it was more than one person because the DNA showed the hair and the fingerprints were more than one person. Yeah, I absolutely. I think it was two people. I think they were very likely sitting in that booth. Yes. One of them went to ask to use the bathroom, went in the back to use the bathroom, maybe opened the back door a little bit so that they could get out faster or they, maybe he didn't, maybe he just went back there to scope out the area and then he came back out and then the door was left open because they booked it out of there. I keep getting caught up on Michael Scott's confession, but in the end, the DNA doesn't show that any of them were there. DNA doesn't lie. If it says that Robert wasn't the person that raped Amy, then he wasn't the person that raped Amy. Most of the questions, if you look up any controversy over DNA and admissibility, it almost always has to do with including people, not excluding them. Exactly. And that's just essentially how alleles and DNA and comparisons work. It's the including that we have to question. But when someone's excluded, it's generally accepted that they are excluded. And there is no, you don't have to do the, oh, it's 85% excluded. They don't usually give a statistic for people being excluded. I just think your scenario of what you just said then, that it was the two guys, one went to the line to scope it out a bit more. Then he went out the back to prop the door open, then came back later on to have finished his drink with his friend and then carried out the crime, that makes more sense than four teenage boys drinking, taking drugs, thinking, we're going to rob this yogurt shop and then killing all the girls. And one of the things that really, the only thing that put these kids on the radar to begin with was that Maurice was caught with the same caliber gun, not the same gun. Ballistic test could not match his gun to the murder weapon. So... He had a similar gun. Well, okay, we're talking about Texas here. So I can't even tell you how many people in Austin, Texas would have a twenty-two caliber. It's not a rare gun. It's not a rare gun. And I know we talked about the differences in gun culture in our <laughs> in our respective countries. So even a 17-year-old with a twenty-two handgun, as much as I'd like to say it would never happen, it happens all the time. That's the only thing that even got them on their scent. And so they just also happened to be the guys who did it. Seriously, if I would highly doubt that Maurice was the only person they picked up holding a twenty two caliber gun in the days following the crime. How they got to the boys was just circumstance. And it just one thing led to the other. The person who even had the gun was not tried for this crime because there wasn't enough evidence. The one they claim was the mastermind. And that's another thing about these confessions is they gave them, the police gave them Maurice to pin it on. Well, Maurice told you to do it. He told you to do it or else, right? They gave them a way to say, yeah, I did it, but it was really his fault. Springsteen is actually suing for his, he's in court now trying to get a legal determination of actual innocence. Because he's still considered a suspect and he wants to be 
truly exonerated, that'll do two things for him. One, it'll clear his name, and two, it will make him eligible for a payout for his wrongful conviction. But the bar for actual innocence is really, really high. Look, to me, this is either a sexually motivated crime or something much bigger than we may ever know. Regardless, it was a carefully thought out crime. And as I said, the fact that the lighter fluid was brought and used shows that it was premeditated. But the question still stands, who would want these girls killed and why? There is a reason for this crime and it wasn't random. Also, we have to remember that every time one of these things comes up, the family is just pulled right back into all of it. And it feels like these are a lot of people and a lot of families who have suffered a lot in this process and continue to as it's there's still no one convicted legally convicted anymore of this crime. Oh, look, when I start first started looking into this crime, I thought we'd be looking at just the crime itself, but it's it became so much more than that. As you said, it wasn't just the families of the victims, it's the families of the four boys that were accused of the crime. There's a lot of people that were affected. And I just think that this crime could be solved. It will need to involve some fresh eyes coming in without any ties to any of the previous investigations to look over the limited evidence that they do have, which isn't much, but it is something, and to look over all the tips because that is something that they do have in abundance. I think this case is indeed solvable, and I do believe that the answer is in that case file somewhere. Do you want to know where I think the answer is? I think it's in an untested rape kit. The United States has a huge problem in most states of rape kits not being processed for DNA because without a suspect to match it to, there's really no point. So we don't have a huge database of all these rape kits like they show on TV where they put the DNA in and it shows every rape that's been that occurred from this perpetrator. I think if other rape kits were all processed, this DNA sample would match multiple. Now, I truly believe it will be solved at some stage. It may not be this year, it may not be next year, it may be in 10 years' time, but I do believe it will be solved. If you'd like to talk to us more about this story or any of our episodes, head on over to Facebook or you can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. Charlie is on Twitter at insightfulpod and I'm on Instagram at insightpod. If you like what we do here, there is a bunch of ways you can support us financially. We are on Patreon where you can support us monthly and access a monthly premium minisode. For a one-off donation, we have a PayPal account. We have a bunch of awesome merchandise. I'm wearing the t-shirt today. For more information and links to all of these and our new articles and documentary reviews, head on over to our website, insightpod.com. And if you aren't in a position to support us in a monetary sense right now, please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. That helps us as well as it brings more listeners our way. And next week, we have a little someone special for you all. So we will see you then. Bye, guys.